And welcome again to Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith and college football podcast. I'm George Schroeder. And I'm Brad Edwards. And George, we're down to one week left for something big to happen in this season. It it was a fun Saturday, no question. It was one big game on the schedule and it lived up to the hype. Outside of that, we knew that crazy things can happen in rivalry week and some crazy things almost happened but not quite. So, well, I mean, I think crazy things change as we things, last talked, right? I mean, I, I can think of a couple crazy things that did happen, but what you mean, I think what you mean is we were waiting for chaos to occur and yes. it almost occurred. Right. That's right. Well put, George. Yeah. Crazy things definitely did happen. They just didn't result in big upsets. I think that's, that's what we're getting at here. We got that. We've got, uh, you know, this is today is the traditionally the day and it's it's gotten earlier and earlier every year. And so some of this has already happened. But today is traditionally the day when coaching changes begin to really happen. And some of those are happening and some hires are being made. So we've got some of that, too. Lots of stuff to talk about as we discuss college football here in the first half. And then we'll talk faith, our shared faith in Christ in the second half. So but before we go any further, let me uh, thank our presenting partner and tell you about them. Subsplash. Subsplash allows your church community to access messages, resources, and even give to your church from one place. It also equips church leaders to connect with their congregation in ways you never could have done before. Subsplash is so much more than just a church software. It brings people together. It empowers giving. It fosters discipleship, and it transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more about Subsplash, I encourage you to book a demo at subsplash.com SBC. When you use that link, you get a special discount for churches, but you do have to use the link to get the discount. Again, that's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash S-B-C, subsplash dot com slash S-B-C. So, so yeah. Brad, you, te- you, you, teased, you teased one huge game, and it was a great yeah. college football game, too. It lived up to the hype, I thought, which is hard to do. Um, but you're talking, of course, about the game, Michigan-Ohio State. And it was, um, you know, in Ann Arbor, no Jim Harbaugh on the sideline, the final of his three-game suspension. And uh, look, the, the big question was, can Michigan beat Ohio State for a third year in a row, even though this time they were favored to do it? The previous two times, they were a little bit of an underdog. Um, and this one was, I mean, did Michigan ever trail? I don't think they did. But um but Ohio State kept it close, and they stayed within range. And it was one of those where, you know, they got the ball back with enough time down six that they had a chance, and they even made a couple of big plays right away. Got across midfield into Michigan territory uh, enough to make you think they had a chance. And uh, unfortunately for the Buckeyes, uh, the uh, quarterback was hit as he threw. Balls picked off. Game ends with an interception. Uh, but it, but it was a very well played competitive game, exactly what you hope for in that situation. And somebody had to lose. And uh, you know, we speculated coming in that this was not a year where a team that didn't win its conference was going to have a chance to to get into the college football playoff. Last year, two teams did, including Ohio State. Uh, this year, the Buckeyes uh, on the the short end of that game again, so they will once again not be the Big Ten champion. Uh, but it doesn't look, George, like it's going to be enough to get them into the playoff this year. But um, it, was, it was a great performance nonetheless, just not enough to beat Michigan. 
Yeah, you know, last year, I mean, kind of there weren't a whole lot of great options uh, to to get to four teams. This year, we're going to get to this probably, and we probably should have teased this at the get-go, but um, it it really looks like there are going to be at least one too many. Um, You're going to have five Power Five Conference champions all deserving of getting in. Mm Mm-hmm. What it looks if like. things play out the way we, if if they play out the way we think they will, and we'll get to that in a second because there's a couple scenarios. Obviously, if if some upsets happen, some more likely than others, and that changes the game. But it's really hard at this point. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take at least two upsets, I think, to get Ohio State in. And 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 I'm not saying they should get in. I mean, uh, you know, I'm going to feel a whole lot worse for that Power Five conference champ that doesn't get in if uh, barring upsets than, than that. But I thought it was a great game. Um, you know, Michigan, uh, it's hard to remember and things turn so quickly, but it's hard to remember where, and obviously they, they played without Jim Harbaugh. He wasn't on the sidelines third straight week with that sort of uh, the self-imposed or the agreed upon suspension. It's not self-imposed because of the uh, sign stealing advanced scouting scandal. It's hard to, rem- it's hard to believe though. Michigan's 26 and one in big 10 games since 2021 or beginning in 2021 it's hard to for, remember that there was a time when Jim Harbaugh couldn't win the big game and the game of course right. is Ohio State and and people were like and he actually took less money one year if you recall yep. like renegotiated his contract and took less money and then all of a sudden it turned and of course the cynics are going to say well it's cuz you started advanced scouting I, look i i don't we'll never know how much that helped them or didn't help them but they've gotten really good. They've gotten really good. They're 26 and 1 in Big 10 games starting with the 2021 season. On the other side, Ryan Day, the Ohio State coach in his fourth season, won his first game against Michigan, contributing to the Jim Harbaugh can't win win the one game that matters and get them to where they want to go whole whole scenario, right? Um and now he's lost 3 in a row against Michigan. He's 56 and 7. 56 and 7. He just went 11 and 0 for 2 years in a row and then lost the game at the end of the regular season. And he's not under he's not on the hot seat or anything, but he's under significant fire at least like there is significant anger and angst and everything else in the Buckeye fan base. And look, they're unrealistic expectations. That's crazy. But you got to beat Michigan. You can't lose 3 times in right. a row. Um and it's amazing. I just I guess I was just saying it's amazing how these things turn. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is, I had forgotten about this until I saw a, a note last night that the the COVID year, twenty twenty, the game was canceled. So you actually have four years in a row that Ohio State has not beaten Michigan, which means that Michigan has a senior class. You know, in in theory, guys who didn't take the COVID extra year or whatever, but guys who who started in twenty twenty and are finishing in twenty twenty three who did not lose to Ohio State, which is mm-hmm. a, a very interesting turn compared to, like you said, where we were before. Here, here's another thing that kind of jumps out at me. Yep. is that which, 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 let me interrupt you for a second. You're right about that, which <clears> makes <throat> my math work better. Ryan Day's 56 and seven, seven losses in five seasons now. Five seasons. Right. right. I'd <clears> forgotten <throat> about that one. So, right, and, yeah. And so, one and three against, right. One in 2019 against Michigan, didn't play in 2020, and then has lost the last three years. So, yeah. So go ahead. But, but what I was going to say, though, is that even though the previous two years, Michigan had beaten Ohio State by a margin that looked very impressive on the scoreboard, Michigan had plays in those games, and I would say probably more so last year than two years ago, 
where they just had a lot of big plays and they were the types yeah. of plays that you just kind of felt like, you know what, if those two teams played again, Michigan would not be able to replicate that. Whereas yesterday, um, this being recorded on a Sunday night, that, that game was, it was not as impressive on the scoreboard. And yet I kind of felt like it was more impressive in that it seemed less flukish to me. Like Michigan, could play Ohio State again this coming Saturday and go out and do something very similar to what they did. I did. I, I think they're they're a little bit better at quarterback right now, and that was pretty much the difference between the teams. Michigan has the better quarterback, and and that's really what it came down to. Ultimately, is that Ohio State's quarterback made some mistakes that cost them, and Michigan's didn't. And and so uh, yeah, to me that was a big part of it. And, and you know, George, uh, before we move on from this game, and I don't know if you have anything else to add, but I just I just want to make this point again because we talked about it last week. And after watching that game, you know, come down to the to the final minute between two undefeated rivals, can you imagine just night and day the difference it would make from this year? to next year as far as the feel of that game. Because what we discussed last week is that with the Big Ten not having divisions next year, if you ended up with that same scenario where both are undefeated going in, they're both going to get into a 12-team playoff. They're going to play each other again the following week in the conference championship championship, game. And, and, And really what would matter for playoff purposes is who wins that game. Like the the game that was played in Ann Arbor would have been – meaningless, essentially. I mean, I, I guess maybe if you go out and you lose yeah. both, right? If you lose back-to-back right. games, it could really hurt your seating. But yeah. um, it's just crazy to think that that in one year, we could go from a situation where that game meant everything. I mean, Ohio State season is, we'll get into this, is not officially over, but barring some pretty significant upsets, it's probably over in terms of getting into the playoff and winning a national championship. Whereas this time next year, same situation going into the game. Buckeyes are good. Like they're they're comfortably in the playoff even with that loss. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, the idea that they could play not not once, not twice, but three times potentially is kind of where you were leading to. But even if they didn't meet in the playoffs, right? It's 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 kind of a long shot that you make your way back through a bracket, depending on how the bracket ends up being drawn up in the seating. But playing two weeks in a row, essentially, that's not good for anybody. But it's it's just not a you know it's just not a great thing. I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this. I think Oklahoma played TCU in the final game of the regular season one year, and then played them again the next week in the in the. Uh, in that the, sounds uh, familiar. I'm not I, in the I, Big I, Twelve championship. It's I, not. I think, it's not Ohio State, Michigan. Well, don't here, get me here's, wrong. Here's I'm the one saying. I remember. The one I remember is there was a year, and I I, I want to say it was around ten years ago. I don't remember exactly which year that Stanford played at UCLA in the final game of the regular season, and then those two teams won the divisions and ended up playing again the next week at Stanford for the the conference championship. Or you know what I say that maybe it was Oregon and UCLA. I know UCLA was involved in the game. And back-to-back weeks, like final regular season game and then conference championship game, it was the same two teams. It was either UCLA-Stanford or UCLA-Oregon. I'm thinking for – it was thinking it was UCLA-Stanford. Um, and so, uh, I mean, it, it has happened. Whether it also happened in the Big 12, I can't recall for sure. Uh, but, it, but, but it wasn't the same setup as Ohio State-Michigan. 
You yep, know, that's one right. of the things that's always separated college football is, is the idea that in some seasons you can't survive one loss. Like a single right. loss could could not always, but could derail your season. And and look, I mean, we're sitting here recording this right now. Um, the conversation is going to come up in a little bit about Alabama, where right. Alabama could conceivably beat a Georgia team that hasn't lost in two years, win the SEC title, and still get left out of the playoff because of one loss. So, um, yeah, I mean, just the, the the total dynamic of the sport is going to change drastically starting next year, just because there's there's no doubt that you have at least one game you can lose. And in, in some cases, um, they, probably in most cases, you can lose two. Hey, hey, I'm wrong about that. It wasn't the last game of the season. There have been several rematches in the Big 12 since they went back to a title game and, and didn't have divisions because they only had 10 schools. Uh, so they played the nine-game round robin. So they've had rematches of some sort every year. But, right, but right. I, I don't think they've had one yet where it was like play this week and play next week. I may be wrong on that, but it definitely wasn't uh, Oklahoma versus TCU. Um, let's go. Uh, let's go ahead and go to that other game. Let's go, because we need to talk about the Apple Cup at some point. Washington had an escape of Washington State. But there is nothing more dramatic that happened yesterday, and you you can like argue with me if you want, than Alabama on fourth and goal from the 31-yard line with time expiring, not really time expiring, but in the final seconds, breaking Auburn's heart. And I'd like to ask, I'd like to ask Hugh Freeze, who's a tremendous coach, why they rushed to, had a spy sitting kind of in a linebacker slot, had eight people inside the uh, inside the end zone and somehow somehow didn't rush Jalen Milrow and then also didn't get the guy covered in the corner of the end zone. But what an incredible ending and a gut punch, a sucker punch for an Auburn team that was about to sort of rip Alabama's heart out to get their heart ripped out. I mean, that is the Iron Bowl. That is rivalry week in a nutshell. It was crazy. And I, I think in a strange way, the ball was like in the perfect spot on the field. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, if you're Alabama, you'd felt much better if it was at the, you know, one foot line or, or even the, the eight yard line. But, but, but when I think about it, like, okay, let, let's say you had a choice between where it was, the 31 or let's say the 15 or midfield. Um, it's almost like you didn't have enough room to work with if it had been at the 15. If you're back at midfield, the the pass is going to require too much trajectory and, and uh, you know, too much air under the ball to give defenders time to get there. But Jalen Milrow, because of the strength of his arm, was able yeah. to pick out one of his top receivers who had one defender on him and had his back to the quarterback who, who was not able to see the ball released, and he threw it on such a rope, there wasn't time for another defender to get there. And it was just simply a case of, it, number one, it was a perfectly thrown ball to the back corner where only one defender had a chance to make a play. Like I said, he never turned around, and the receiver just went up and beat him to the ball. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything miraculous. I'm not, I'm not saying it was exactly the way they drew it up, but it's not like it required a tip or you know, some sort of fluke. It was just well executed in that they got one of their best receivers one-on-one with the defender and he threw it to the right spot. Now, when he let that ball go, George, I thought he had thrown it out of the back of the end zone. 
because because on TV it's hard to read the angle and see you know how much he had thrown it to his left to the far corner of the end zone. But yeah, when you when you look at it and all the replays, you realize like it was just. I mean, the key to it was that the ball was thrown to the perfect spot. But other than that, there was there wasn't really anything all that flukish about it. And if you're Hugh Freeze, I mean, think about it. When he was at Ole Miss in 2015, he lost the SEC West on a fourth and 25 that Ole Miss allowed Arkansas to convert. Obviously, the stakes were not as big for his team in this situation, but they were just as big for his opponent. <laughs> well, and, and, and listen, if you're Auburn, you, so it, yeah, if, if you're Auburn and you can stop Alabama from getting to the playoff, you that I mean that doesn't count as like a successful season, but it's a successful season. You know what I mean? So well, and think, uh, it's. I, I'm just amazed, quite frankly, at the entire event. I mean, first of all, it's a 10-year anniversary, and I don't mean to the day, but the 10-year yeah. anniversary of the kick six, which is perhaps that is the rip your heart out sort of take, you know, it, that's the one that kept Alabama from getting to the SEC title game and getting to the playoff and sent Auburn eventually to the to the SEC title game and then into the, it wasn't the playoff, but the BCS championship game from there. But um that it's amazing just to see what happened. Uh, uh, Dan Mullen, the former Mississippi State Florida coach, who is doing a nice job, I think, on the college football final on ESPN. Did you see that he pointed out that they had they had eight people in the end zone, defenders in the end zone? Okay. Now, first of all, I just want to say this: um, Jalen Monroe, I don't know if you noticed this, but as he was looking around, he actually popped some popcorn. <laughs> and I don't mean microwave popcorn. I mean he actually got the old fashioned popcorn, popped it, and in, in, that's what in a two man rush will do. Looked around. There's a guy spying him, like with a two man rush, like he's going anywhere. So you don't need the spy. You might as well have a ninth guy in the end zone. Right, right. I, I, I mean, I get it. But they had eight guys in the end zone. Dan Mullen pointed out that there were uh, five receivers out, and that that three of them in the middle of the end zone in the were double covered. And that the two guys on the outside corners were single covered. Now, my assumption is that was intentional. It was intentional, and and that they were, you know, planning to use the the sidelines and the back and the end line as sort of extra defenders. Right. And it just didn't work out because he threw a perfect pass. But oh my goodness, do, if you are uh, Auburn, are you rethinking what that final play's defensive strategy was? Yeah, I'm, look, I, I think that maybe the mindset is that they were treating it the same way as they would have a Hail Mary. Like if, if the ball had been thrown from midfield and I think what they did, maybe I'm just speculating is that they underestimated the amount of time it was going to take for the ball to leave the quarterback's hand and get to the end zone. But as I said earlier, there's a big difference between the 31. You're right. Yeah. And he was able to throw that ball on a line and it was there in about two seconds. And at least it felt like about two seconds. And there just, there wasn't time for any defender other than the one who was covering him to make a play on that ball. And he never turned around. Another thing, George, just more, you know, more big picture um, is, is, I mean, the kick six that was beaten to death this week with the, you know, with the 10 year anniversary and all that. But you remember Auburn after the kick six won the SEC, but they ended up losing the national championship game in the closing seconds. Right. So to they got an State. SEC right. title out of it, but they didn't get a national title out of it. And, and that's right. That said, I'm not so sure that what's happened at Auburn the last two times Alabama's gone down there, 
doesn't, I'm not saying it completely offsets it, but I think it does a whole lot to take the sting out of that. Um, because look, I think most of us are familiar with the, the ESPN in-game win probability model. And, and anybody watching that, it's no surprise that it was 99.9% Auburn was going to win the game at fourth and goal from the 31 and Alabama, you know, didn't have all three timeouts in case they didn't get it. Um, but if you were to go back two years earlier when Bryce Young led that final drive, I don't think it was ever that high on the drive. But remember prior to that drive, Auburn had like two plays, I think it was, to get one yard, to get a first down, yeah. to end the game. And they couldn't do it, punted Alabama back to its one yard line, which led to that drive. So at some point in the closing two minutes, I have to believe Auburn was somewhere close to a 99%, you know, likelihood of winning in that game as well. So to lose two in a row on your home field to your arch rival where you had total control of the game, where, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of <laughs> Alabama's chance was anywhere from one in a hundred to one in a thousand, um, two games in a row and they managed to win both of them. And, and like I said, it doesn't completely undo the kick six, but I, I, you know, if, if I'll say this, if Alabama somehow gets into the playoff and wins the whole thing, I I think, I think what happened this year will to some extent undo the kick six because Alabama will have gotten more from winning this game than Auburn actually got from winning that game 10 years ago. Yeah, and I want to get into that because it obviously preserves, and we'll get into it in a minute, but it obviously preserves Alabama's opportunity to go to the playoff because had they lost that game, still in the SEC championship game, already won the SEC West, but even with a win over Georgia, it's very hard. They would not be getting in. Not this year, not, not with two losses. Year. I yeah. think that's pretty fair. Um, now, and I and we, I don't want to get deep into this because we got to talk about the Apple Cup and a couple of other things, Florida State saying I'm beaten. Let, let's do that, and then I want to talk about Sure. Playoff yeah. scenarios. scenarios. So, Apple Cup, um, it's it's a rivalry game. If we're going to talk about Alabama having a great win at a at a fair, you know, pretty mediocre Auburn team, I don't want to hear anybody talking about how um, Washington barely beat uh, Washington State. Right. It, it's, it is a rivalry game. Washington State, it's like it had everything to play for, including the whole we're getting left behind and we're going to be part of the Pac-2 and everything else thing. Took a crazy, cool, and gutsy, and it's a good thing it worked, call by Kalen DeBoer on fourth and one, where they had sort of the jets, the, the, the fake to the, to the running back dive, and then they had the, sort of the little reverse sweep pitch um, to, the, to the receiver. Otherwise, they're basically handing the game in a tie game to, to Wazoo. And then they go down and they hit a walk-off field goal to win it. Um, I don't think Washington has looked great, but they are twelve and zero. Yeah, they're twelve and zero. Meanwhile, on the other side of the uh, the bracket, there the Pac twelve championship game, which will be the first of the big championship games this weekend, Oregon, you know, which played them to a virtual draw and lost in Seattle, has looked really, really good ever since. Is eleven and one, and I'm just going to tell you, I cannot wait to see that game. I think Oregon's the better team. Yeah. And I think well, if you, and I think the winner, I think either one of them is in the playoff. I don't think there'll be much uncertainty, even if it's Oregon, regardless of what else happens. I think they're in the playoff. And and I think that if it's Oregon, 
and you want to say who other than Georgia might win this whole thing, I might pick Oregon as the team out of the seven or eight teams that you look at right now that can make the playoff, and maybe it's six or seven now. I think Oregon looks like the team that's built to win it other than Georgia. Obviously, Georgia, you have to look at Georgia and say, and I know Michigan, I get it, but I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah, so so you know, starting with Washington – um, yep. I, I saw a note today and I can't remember exactly what it was. And I don't want to, first of all, I don't want to mess it up. And second, I don't want to fail to credit whoever came up with the stat, but it was, it was something, it was something, the effect of the number of games that they have won this season by, I can't remember if it was single digits or 10 points or fewer. And, and I, I think they set a record um, for the, for the number of games in a single season that have been won by, you know, a small wow. margin, not necessarily all coming down to the wire, like, like the apple cup did. Right. But, um, you know, let's just say that they, they haven't since the first few weeks of the season, they haven't exactly dominated. Right. And, uh, no, but, and, 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 but they've been really good. So neither one of us is like taking shots at them here. Right. 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 Well, so when the, they could win a second time against absolutely. Oregon. So here's the other thing though, is that if I remember this correctly, they are the since the since the formation of the Pac-12. So since Utah and Colorado joined the league, I believe Washington is the first team to go undefeated through conference play outside of the COVID year where USC played like four conference games or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And the last unbeaten champion was. The last unbeaten champion was was Oregon back in what 2010 when they played uh, Auburn in the 2011 right, BCS right, championship yeah. game. So yeah, yeah and that was I mean, that was Pac-10, right? That was yeah. Pac-10, I mean, say, not say whatever you want about the the Pac-12 and prior to this year how competitive it had been, but but even then teams were not able to get through that league undefeated. So what Washington is, has done, um, you know, is is obviously a, a very big deal. But, um, George, I, I think the majority of people who follow the sport agree with your assessment that Oregon is the better team. I, I saw earlier today, and I, you know, I, I don't know exactly when this stuff becomes official, but apparently Oregon is more than a touchdown favorite in this yep, rematch after losing the first game. And so that, that says a lot about, uh, about how much better Oregon has looked than Washington has since that head-to-head meeting you know, over a month ago. So uh, look, it should be a great game. And like, like you said... I mean, just because of how they looked this past week or even, you know, the last four games or so, that that doesn't mean anything when it comes to a one-game scenario. I mean, go back to the Iron Bowl. I mean, Auburn lost by 21 in New Mexico State and then turns around seven days later and almost knocks off Alabama. It's like every every day is a new day. It's a new game. And uh, it comes down to who executes on that day. And, um, you know, Washington might not be favored, but they certainly still have a good chance. Yeah, listen, I'm just going to say this. First of all, Oregon played on Friday, and we're recording on Sunday, played on Friday and looked really good in their rivalry game, the the rivalry formerly known as the Civil War. They play for the little wooden platypus trophy unofficially, which is the, the you look it up, Google it, folks. It's one of the um, hokiest things of all time, and it's not even official because it's so hokey. But they looked really, really good again. I guess a very good Oregon State team that, if we'll recall, the week before gave Washington all it wanted. Now, that's yep. in Corvallis, in the rain. Things change, right? I get it. But they looked really good. I'm going to fast forward the Pac-12 champion into the playoff, period. 
Washington or Oregon, even Oregon at 12 and 1, certainly a 13 and 0 Washington would be in. I'm going to put them in the playoff, but that takes us down to Florida State, which with Tate Rodemaker uh, in for Travis Jordan, who obviously suffered the uh, uh, the, se- the career ending injury in the previous week, um, they go down 12 nothing early at Florida. Another rivalry game. Not a good, not a good Florida team. They're they're really not good at all. In fact, they're pl- but they were playing to get to bowl eligibility, and they finished what five and seven, right? Yeah. Um, down 12 nothing early, come back and win 24-15. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Tate Rodemaker made a ton of difference. I thought he made some nice plays. Uh, but they're just better than Florida. But I think winning that, even though they're not now about to play a Louisville team who got upset by, which got upset by Kentucky in yet another rivalry game. Yeah, but they're about to play Louisville, uh, a ten and two Louisville team in the ACC championship game. If Florida State wins, I'm just going to tell you the committee can't leave them out. It's not going to happen. Thirteen and zero, Power Five champ unbeaten. They're not getting left out. That's not going to happen. But what so- did you think about Florida State? And I know we think that there's an out perhaps for the committee if they're up against a, you know, um, some other conference champion uh, with with one loss because they can say, hey, Travis Jordan is out, that kind of thing. But what do you think about Florida State? What did you think about them then? What do you think about their and, – and by the way, I don't care what the committee does in Tuesday's rankings. Those don't matter at all. Right. The conference championships are going to get applied, and that will change things when they start looking at these these teams next week. So, first of all, to and I realize Florida was also playing with a backup quarterback, but to be down twelve nothing on the road, in uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you you it's only two scores, but to be down that on the road in a rivalry game with a backup quarterback and come back and and win, um, that's a, that's a good win for Florida State, and so right. you know, yeah. commend Agreed. them for being able to do that at the same time. Nobody's scared of that offense. I mean, that the quarterback change, at least through one game of looking at it, made a big difference for who Florida State is. Now they they could easily just, lose to Louisville, is what you're saying could, here, which would but, which would change things. But here's my thing, George. I mean, obviously a loss to Louisville changes things. Right. But let's say they beat Louisville in a similar game to what they played against Florida, where it was just kind of, you know, it, it was there was nothing pretty about it. They just kind of survive with a mediocre offense, and and maybe they just win because they don't make a big mistake. All right, you had mentioned last week, and I think it was spot on, the idea that that in the first year of the playoff, the committee did not rush to judgment after Ohio State had lost its starting quarterback, um, and Cardell Jones came in, actually the third Ohio State quarterback for that season. And they waited to see what would happen, and and their offense didn't miss a beat with him in there in the Big Ten championship game. And uh, obviously, they got into the playoff. They ended up winning the whole thing. I don't think you can say that about Florida State, at least through one game. And if through two games, you can't say that you know their offense hasn't missed a beat. When if you look at them and you say, you know what, this team they may be undefeated, but this is not the same. Now, I, I think it depends for the committee on who it is that they're comparing them to for the last spot. Right. If Alabama so were at, upset let, Georgia. Okay. Yeah, so and, let's, and, look, let's look at that for a second. Big 10 champ in, right? Yep. Now, no, 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 no. Obviously, if Iowa upsets Michigan, we have a different. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to fast forward. All right, I'm going to go ahead and reveal my pick at the end of the 
Yeah. Listen, it ain't happening. So Don't give it away, Michigan, George. Big Ten champ in. Um, Pac-12 champ, I just said, is in. And I'm not saying this is how the seeding will go, because if Georgia wins, I assume they'll be the number one seed. SEC champ, if it's Georgia, no doubt is in. Yep. Okay? If it's Alabama, it's hard to fathom them being out now. Even just it's hard to fathom, but that takes us to ACC champ at 13 and 0. Because if, if Louisville beats Florida State, we're not talking about this. So let's pretend like Florida State wins however they win. But let's just say it's a humdrum effort, but they beat Louisville. And then you have Texas, who we have not mentioned the best. I think that's the first mention of Texas on the pod this week. Texas tw- would be 12 and 1. They would have beaten a 9 and 3 Oklahoma State team. Um, which it you know it would have been better for Texas to play Oklahoma and avenge a loss, right? But that's how that went. But they'd be twelve and one right now. They're coming off a big time beatdown after all sort of escapes, a beatdown of Texas Tech. Um, so you'd have a Texas at twelve and one. So you'd you'd come down to ACC thirteen and zero versus Texas twelve and one versus in your scenario, if Alabama beats Georgia. Does Alabama automatically in? Is Georgia have a shot? I mean, you know, there's there's still some chaos that could ensue here, or at least some yeah. hard conversations about four versus five, harder than any we've seen before. Yeah, and, and getting back to Florida State, though, that situation if they're if they're looking mediocre offensively with a backup quarterback, and they just you know in that situation manage to survive against right. a a. a Florida team with a losing record and also having a backup quarterback. And then a Louisville team, which, look, has had a really good season, but just had just lost at home to Kentucky the week before. If if that's what they do in unimpressive fashion with a backup quarterback, let's just say, let's say you've got, let's say you've got um, Georgia, Michigan, Oregon. Are your three that are already in, right? And then it's it up to yeah. the fourth anyway, one. Yeah. Let's let, let's say it's Texas against Florida State, right? I mean, if I'm the committee, I I, I look, I, I would just be one member of the committee, obviously not speaking for the whole group. But if it's my vote, and you're asking me who are the four best teams, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, Georgia's going to steamroll Florida State with a backup quarterback, whereas Texas could conceivably give them a game. If you're talking about Texas as the four seed. Um, but, but basically you've got three teams at that point that, that Florida state could not be competitive yeah. with that are already in the playoff. And so, so are you really, ta- if you're taking Florida state, are you really taking the four best teams? And I'm not saying that, that every year they do take the four best teams. There've been many times that we, I think we'd all say that, you know, they weren't taking the four best they were taking the four most deserving. Although one thing that may be different here, George, is just that because this is the final year of the four-team format, the committee doesn't have to worry about, you know, I'm going to do quotes here, setting a bad precedent, right? Because normally you'd say, I don't want to set the precedent that a team could go undefeated in a Power Five conference and get left out. Well, in the future, that'll never happen. And it, and it may never happen this year, no matter what the scenarios are. We, we don't know how the committee would handle it, but but I do think you could make a great argument, even if Florida State is undefeated, that they are clearly not one of the four best teams. And at that point, it's really just a matter of is the committee doing what they think is fair or are they really doing what their job is? 
Yeah, let me let me just tell you something. I don't think that the committee can leave out a thirteen and zero Power Five champion. Um, which, if you're thirteen and zero, by definition, you're a champion. But a Power Five champion that's undefeated ain't getting left out. That's what I think, and I think that's what sort of they got themselves. Florida State got themselves to the opportunity. I'm not. I don't know if they'll win, but they got themselves to that opportunity. So. Um, but I hear what you're saying. I can see that. Um, I think the odd team out right now, if 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 all the favorites won, is Texas. Now, if Alabama won, we'd have a re- we'd get back to that argument, right? And it'd be really interesting to see what the Cal- uh, what what the committee did. If Alabama won and all the other favorites won, and by the way, favorites either Pac-12 champion, either Pac-12 team. Yeah. But um, if if Alabama won and Texas won. And all the favorites won. I, I think we'd have a real interesting conversation. The committee would have a dilemma as to what to do. And we've talked I, about this the last couple of times. Yeah. But I think I think Alabama's going to get the nod at this point, whether they I should don't. or not. I, and they I, just I think, beat a Georgia team. I know that that everybody thinks is is the best in the country. And I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying that's what the perception is right now, right? That's what we they're ranked that way. They've started to play that way. And now in this scenario, Alabama's just beating Georgia. I, I know, look, it's it's hard to sit here and have the conversation before we've actually watched Alabama beat Georgia because obviously once you see them do that, the Iron Bowl is, is back of your mind. Mm-hmm. But as we sit here right now, I mean, I, I think what Alabama just did against Auburn and the, the minor miracle that it took for them to survive that team I'm just um, thinking about it, I, what New Mexico State did to Auburn the week before right, in, the same, know, but, in the same yeah, building. And so... But the whole thing is, is like if Alabama did that in its second to last game, um, are you like, are you able to, to to say without any doubt that Alabama is better than Texas? Because because Texas no. has already gone into Tuscaloosa you, and won by double digits. I'm just telling you what I think but, the committee is going to do if that happens. You know, it's a now, maybe it brings the Florida State thing back into play. Although I do I'm think they're, I don't think they can blow. Didn't do that. I, I want to be consistent because back in 2011, when Oklahoma State lost its second to last game at Iowa State, and then they blew right. out Oklahoma the next week, I, I said multiple times on radio shows that you cannot lose your second to last game of the season to Iowa State and make a claim that you're the second best team in the country. Like, I, I just, I can't put those two together. And, and, and then granted, Alabama didn't lose to Auburn. They almost did, but I think it's a similar argument. Like I, I just have a hard time saying that after that, one game removed from that, yeah. that I could tell you that Alabama is now so much better than Texas that the head-to-head doesn't matter. Yeah, fair enough. I can't fair go enough. there. All right, look, plenty of stuff to talk about with that. We could do scenarios, you know, even now, uh, because – it looks like you've got five legit conference champions, quite possibly, unless some upsets happen. It's going to be difficult. So, uh, and if Alabama beats Georgia, then the question of what to do with Alabama, what to do with Georgia, Georgia you know, no offense, but I find it hard to believe you could put Georgia in. But we, we'll, we'll talk all that later. We do need to get like three minutes worth of of coaches of coaching carousel in here. Oh, that's right, that's happened too. We need to treat it, yeah. So Jimbo Fisher, right, gets let's go at Texas A and M. It, the reports are out from various outlets all over the place that 
after after they had a after they kind of went after Mark Stoops, Kentucky, and may, apparently A and M backed off late uh, yesterday evening. Um, Mike Elko, former A and M defensive coordinator, who's doing a really nice job at Duke, is the guy now, and that he will be announced tomorrow. Now that's not official, but that appears to be where it's going to go. I just want to tell you, I think that's a really good hire. It's not a splash hire necessarily, although I do think the Aggie faithful is happier with that than the Mark Stoops hire would have been. But I think it's a good hire. I think it, it, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's a tough job with huge expectations. But Mike Elko did a nice job as defensive coordinator. He's done a nice job in two years at Duke. Um, so we'll see. That's let, me, let me say this uh, real quickly, George. Yep. Is that, and I, 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 maybe I'm missing somebody, but I think if this ends up being the hire, that Mike Elko would be the first coach to actually take advantage of success at Duke to elevate himself <laughs> since Steve Spurrier. Because there have been others that have had some success at Duke, but they didn't leave when they had the opportunity, and then it ended up crashing and burning on them. Um, I, I remember vividly one of my well, early years at ESPN, Lee Corso sure. pleading with Fred Goldsmith after having a great season at Duke to get out. Like, get out now while you have the chance because you can't <laughs> sustain this. And he didn't do it. Um, obviously, Cutcliffe had some good seasons there, but um, you know he didn't didn't take the opportunity. Um, so yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I'll say congrats to Mike Elko for uh, <laughs> for using Duke as the stepping stone that it that it really is as a football job. As we're uh, recording this on Sunday, and things can change, um, but uh, and so there may be some others that we'll just hit on in a minute that that have been filled or more that have opened by the time you're listening to this. But Mississippi State has made it official um, after getting rid of Zach Arnett, who was the interim after Mike Leach's untimely passing last year and then got the full-time job and then it didn't work out, um, lasted less than one season. They have hired Jeff Levy, the uh, Oklahoma offensive coordinator, and son-in-law, by the way, uh, former Baylor coach Art Bryles, runs that sort of offense. It's a hybrid of that uh, Art Bryles-style offense. There will be some questions because there are going to be some questions everywhere Jeff Levy goes about the fact that he was on the Baylor staff when some of those things went down. Um, but Zach Selman is the uh, less than a year hired uh, um, athletic director at Mississippi State. Came from Oklahoma. And he's the Oklahoma. He's the son, by the way, of and I can't ever remember which one, but one of the famous Selman brothers, the defensive tackles, defensive uh, linemen for that were all Americans for Oklahoma back in the seventies. Zach Selman obviously knew Jeff Levy from from his time at Oklahoma. Thoughts on that hire? You know, I, 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 it's it's so difficult to ever say that Mississippi State made a home run hire. I mean, it's just they got to get someone who's interested in that job um, because it, it's a very difficult place to win. Just just given where you're located and all the teams that have bigger names, better resources that are recruiting around you coming into your state. So um, it's it's a tough gig. I mean, I, I guess I can understand the draw of someone who's considered to be a great offensive mind. That's why they went after Mike Leach a few years earlier. And um, I look at your Mississippi State, you, you just hope you can win eight or nine games every now and then and, you know, maybe have that that magical year where you have a senior laden roster and you can make a run at, at the, well, I was going to say the SEC West, which won't exist anymore. So <laughs> I, you know, at this point though, I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to say, is it a good hire? I think it's 
probably as, as good as they could have done. Yeah, I think that's right. Michigan State, um, which has been a dumpster fire uh, since the Mel Tucker situation um, with all the off-the-field issues blew up and he was fired uh, midseason, hired Jonathan Smith from Oregon State. Um, I think that's a really good hire. I think people were somewhat surprised that the Oregon State alumnus, former quarterback there, would leave. But I also think that's a testament to the fact that Oregon State is about to be one of the pack two, right, with Washington right. State. And it's very uncertain what the future is. I think you probably take the job anyway, even given your ties to uh, Oregon State. Uh, but it was a no-brainer. I think that's a good hire because the thing he's done yeah. at Oregon State is he's found like hidden gems and developed them, which is what kind of the – that was sort of the Mark D'Antonio uh, – kind of what he did at Michigan State if you think about it. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a good hire. Um, I I disagree with you in that I don't think that he would have left Oregon State for that job yeah. if if the Pac-12 was not dissolving as a conference. Like, if he could have stayed in another conference that was going to get you know automatic entry basically to the college football playoff, and I'm not saying that at Oregon State you're planning on winning the league, but you know he had a good team this year that in a you know a couple. Of, bounces go his way, then maybe he's in a position in a 12-team playoff world to have had a shot with a team like he had this year. Um, and, and so I think you would have had a better shot staying in the Pac-12 than you would, you know, go into the Big Ten, given the depth that that league is, is going to have from from here forward. So, uh, mm-hmm. but, but either way, I think he made the only move that he really could, which was to get out of Oregon State as much as he didn't want to, I'm sure. But, um, but, but yeah, and co- when it comes to coaching, it's it's about a career now, and I think it was a it was a good career move as long as he can at least be average in the Big Ten, right? Yeah, agree, agree with that. Now I'll just say this: I, I feel terrible for Oregon State uh, because he was the right guy for them, and they're just in a tough spot. The portal opens; they're probably going to lose a bunch of people. Um, they don't really know what their schedule is next year, and they don't have a coach, so. That's tough. A uh, couple other real quick things. Indiana um, parts ways with Tom Allen, paying what by Indiana uh, and Auburn size by that buyout, which is crazy <laughs> at Indiana. Houston parts ways with Dana Holgerson after three losing seasons in five years. Of course, he had left West Virginia to go to Houston. Houston is a crazy place with boosters with uh, Tillman Fertitta with with unrealistic expectations. Exactly. But they're now in the Big Twelve. I think that's an intriguing job because of the uh, recruiting base they have in the same zip code. Uh, that's interesting. Um, and then I guess Syracuse firing Dino Babers doesn't surprise anybody. So um, more things may have happened by the time you guys listen to this, I would say. And somebody needs to hire, by the way, Sharon Moore, the offense coordinator at Michigan. I think he has shown um, – and now maybe he'll be the guy at Michigan if Jim Harbaugh leaves, but that's a topic for another another time. I, uh, I just think he's looked really good in sort of what became a tryout these last three games. And then he coached one of those games in the first part of the season when Jim Harbaugh was on his other suspension. So um, I don't know. Um, thoughts? Any more thoughts yeah, about? I mean, the I, I guess personal? my only other thought would be, you know, it, it's a new world. We've seen it the past few years uh, with the early signing period now, and you know, it used to be that all of the recruits would sign the first week of February, but now that that's moved up to December, there is a sense of urgency. If you know you're going to make a coaching change, go ahead and make it in November, if not earlier, so that you can get a coach in place where he has some sort of chance to piece together a recruiting class because most of these kids are signing in December. And I think that's the reason that we're 
you know, seeing more and more of these these firings every year in November is because of the early signing period. But uh, I think it's here to stay, so we might as well get used to it. Absolutely. Well, look, we could have talked uh, a whole lot more about the coaching carousel, about the final weekend of college football's regular season, and about what's coming next week uh, with all the championship games. Uh, but we got to get out of here, and we'll come back after halftime here with the second half, and we'll talk about our faith in Christ. So uh, we'll be right back right after this. Gridiron in the Gospel is brought to you by Subsplash, the leading engagement platform for your ministry. You can book a demo at subsplash.com slash SBC. When you use that link, you get a special discount for churches, but you have to use that link for the discount. Again, that's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H dot com slash SBC, subsplash.com slash SBC. And welcome back in to Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith in college football podcast. And uh, this is the the second half where we discuss our faith in Jesus. And our favorite time of this podcast every week, George, is the chance to talk about kind of what's going on in our lives, or at least in our minds and in our hearts. And, uh, you know, just just a little, little bit about our spiritual lives that we want to share with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. We call that segment On My Heart on my heart. And, and, and I, I need to tell you about our partner for on my heart legacy way. That segment is presented by legacy way, giving glory to God by sharing his love through generosity. Please go find out more at legacyway.org. And so every week, either you or I share what's on our heart. And this week you've got something on your heart, Brad. Yeah. And this is pretty simple, George, but it, it's one of those things. I think it's important. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we all do, Bible studies, um, you know, now and then. And, and, uh, I was recently, uh, reading through Romans and I got to the final chapter and it's very, very easy for us to kind of just skim through a chapter like this, um, and not really read it or study it or think about it. Um, but I try not to do that. I try to just give every chapter the same amount of attention. And even though this is basically the conclusion to, you know, one of the, you know, one of the really significant books of the Bible, and not not to say that there are any that are insignificant, um, but obviously Romans is a very important book. And you get to the end, and it's basically Paul just giving thanks to a lot of people who have who have helped out. And as I was reading through it, it just occurred to me, like these are real people who, who lived in history and were all somehow involved in something that they, at the, at the moment, and even the moment that Paul wrote this, they had no idea what this was going to grow into and, and how significant their work would end up being. And they got a mention, like it's, you know, it's almost like, like, you know, the credits are rolling at the end of a movie and, you know, you got these people down there and like, nobody's paying attention to these names, but you know, they're, they're proud. They're looking, Hey, look, there's me. And, and, and yet I look at these names and I think how awesome it would be. Now there, there's some names on this list that, um, you know, have been discussed for various reasons because of, uh, maybe, maybe they had appeared in, a, in another place in one of Paul's letters or, uh, because of, of what he says they did, they've gotten more attention than some of the others, but, but just, you know, go, go through this list. And I'm looking at Romans chapter 16, um, let, let's say we start with like somewhere around verse five. Okay. Okay. Like, um, so 
And I'm not even, you know what? I was going to start reading some of these names out loud, but I'm going to end up mispronouncing them because most of them are Greek no, names no, that's, anyway. That's what we want you to do, please. Oh, you want me to. Okay. Let, so, so, uh, Eponidas, okay. Eponidas is one, uh, who comes up. Okay. There's a Mary. Okay. How many Marys are there in, in the, the New Testament in general? And this is one that I, I don't think would have been the same Mary that would have been in any, any mentioned in any of the Gospels. Um, Andronicus and Junia. Um, you have, uh, Ampiliatus, um, Urbanus, uh, Stachys, Apelles. So, and I keep Aristobulus, um, Herodian, you keep going on and on, uh, Narcissus, uh, Tryphena, uh, Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus. There you go. I mean, so I, you, you, you've that heard one people was easier. Rufus. Rufus, yeah. Um, <laughs> Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, uh, Petrobus, Hermas, um, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and uh, Olympus. And I thought somewhere there was uh, there was another one that I missed. But anyway, um, can, but can you, you look at all these. The fact that you What's actually you went through the fact that you actually went through all of those and and gave I, it I, a, I, a like a a, a I, real I try. try right? You did. That was tremendous. Try. But I'm um, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. But the point is, is that, is that, yeah. I mean, to most people, it's just a name. But these are people who had a very specific role, and they obviously did their job well. They they played their role well for Paul to have included them in these thanks. And I I think the lesson, and this is what's what's on my heart, is that for for every one of us, we have a role to play. You know, and, and, you know, you, you read other places in Paul's letters about spiritual gifts, right? And then we all have the different things that God has equipped us to do in order to serve the church. And some of them are, are maybe, um, more glamorous than others, right? Some are going to get more attention than others, but we all have a role to play. We're all different parts of the body of Christ as, as he explains in, in other letters. And these are people who did their job and are being acknowledged for it. And it's just kind of, uh, many people have heard the saying, bloom where you're planted. And that's what these people did. And I, 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 I want all of us to just think about that and think like, what is, if, if you're not already serving in some way in, in your, in your church family, what is it that God has equipped you to do? What, what is it that you are better at than a lot of people are where you could get involved and, Maybe you're not going to get your your name out there for uh, the world to be able to to read for all of history like these people did, um, but you can make a big difference. And I mean, whether whether you are a greeter, whether you are you know someone who helps out in the kitchen, there are just all sorts of roles that are necessary in every church. And and that's that's who I think about when I read this chapter. I think about the people who show up, you know every Sunday or every Saturday and Sunday, or sometimes Wednesdays, you know, at various churches and they do uh, a job that they were called to do and they do it well. And they, they serve as we're called to serve. And, and I, I just want to thank every one of those people all over the world who are doing jobs like these people who are mentioned by Paul in Romans 16. And, there's so many churches and so many ministries out there that could not function the way they do without all of the people 
who don't get the attention, people who a lot of those who, who pass by them don't know their names, but they're showing up, right? And they're, and they're doing what needs to be done. And so um, that was a, a whole lot to say, just to simply say that, that we, we all have that opportunity. How many of us are taking advantage of that opportunity? How many of us are maybe sitting on the sofa thinking, oh, you know what? Maybe there's something bigger that, you know, if I wait, there'd be a bigger opportunity. No, don't wait. Find out what you can do and make a difference in your church uh, or in some ministry, because there are plenty of, of things out there, you know, where, where everyone's looking for someone to fill a role. And I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of things out there that we could all do if we just simply look for it. Well, and that's our purpose, right? Is to bring glory to God. It's, it's to bring glory to God, whether or not we, we get acclaim in the eyes of, of men, right? In fact, we, if we get a claim in the eyes of men, okay, but that's not, that should be like not even a consideration, right? Right. And so I love what you're saying. Uh, I love two or three things about this. And I want to, I want to say this first. Uh, in verse five, you, the first name that you, you tried, and I, and I can't do it either. <laughs> Greet my dear friend Eponidas, Paul writes, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. He calls him his dear friend. And yeah. I just kind of wonder if, the description of Eponidas as the first convert to Christ from Asia. I mean, obviously they formed a friendship, but that had to be super special uh, to Paul to know to know that guy and whether or not Paul had to do with with Eponidas's conversion or not. I, I don't know that we know, um, but, but I love that description. Um, you, you see some guys like Prisca and Aquila, his co-workers in Christ Jesus, verse four, who risked their own necks for Paul's life, right? But then you look at some of these. Mary, you mentioned. Here's what he describes. Here's how he describes her. Mary, who has worked very hard for you, meaning the readers, the the the, the church in Rome. Um, you go down a little bit further. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my friend Persis, my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. And so you have people who all who who. Boy, sounds terrible. All they did, what they did, was they worked hard for you. They worked yeah. hard in the Lord. Um, and, and I'm fairly certain that, uh, that was probably about as much, uh, recognition as they got right there is Paul writing a letter. Um, and we do skip over those. So I'm so glad that you pulled an on my heart out of one of Paul, <laughs> what Paul does in uh, basically all his letters, right? Is he basically spends the last, uh, few verses saying, Hey, greet this guy, greet that guy, say hi to Timothy, that kind of thing. Right. Um, or Timothy says hi because Timothy's usually with him, um, and so uh, I love the fact that you, you don't read over those things. Is what you're telling us? Look at those. There's something you can glean from every single yeah. uh, jot and tittle of scripture, and I love the fact that you've done that this week. So, man, I, I love the fact that that's what's on your heart. Yeah, and and you know, like the the names might not be relevant, but the role is, and like you said, the fact that they're just being commended for working hard. Right. And um, and and that's something that every one of us has the opportunity to do. So thank you, George. And uh, thank you to Legacy Way for uh, for bringing everyone that segment every single week. We love doing it. And uh, it's just a special part of this podcast for you um, and, and for us as well. Um, uh, that takes us to the exciting conclusion. Our picks for championship week. In a way, I guess, George, this is the conclusion of the regular season of college football for this podcast in 2023. Um, so uh, let's let's get into it. And uh, our picks partner, Better Man, 
uh, is bringing to this, uh, bringing us this segment as they always do. Better Man is calling an audible. They're giving men an easy to use playbook, a timeless strategy for how to win as a man. A free resource for small and large groups, Better Man is perfect for any gathering. Check them out at betterman.com. And uh, this is pretty simple. We pick five games at the end of the pod. And uh, this week, we have five major conferences, and we're going to pick those games. George, let's go ahead and get the uh, easy one out of the way that we're, we'll kind of save our breath on this one, which is so you're the not Big going Ten Championship game. Yeah. Okay, not going <laughs> no, chronologically. Let, let's just get this one out of the way. Um, Iowa, Michigan, and Indianapolis, who you got? Yeah, Saturday in Indianapolis. Um, let me think really hard. Actually, okay, so I got a better question. Here, here's the question for the pick, not who's going to win. Will Iowa score more than seven points? Yes, they will score. Mm. Uh, they'll score nine. Uh, look, I, okay. I don't know. The fact that I'm they won ten no. games is the the fact that Iowa won ten games is an amazing thing, Brad. It's an amazing <laughs> it thing is. with the lack of offense they've had, which points to the fact also that they have a very very good defense, and also that they're playing a bunch of munchkins in the in the Big Ten West. Yeah. That's part of this. Um, uh, but they're about to run into something they haven't seen all year, and. I don't know that Michigan's going to score a bazillion points. It's not a buzzsaw offense, but their defense is at least as good as or better than Iowa's. And so, yeah. uh, and obviously their offense is a whole lot better well, than Iowa's. So Michigan's going to win easy. Easy. And I think what we're going to find out is is uh, one of two things. Um, or we're going to find out two things. One is, is Iowa's defense actually good or – are the offenses they've been playing against in the Big Ten West just that bad? Because if they're good, maybe they could hold Michigan under 30, right? Um, now, their offense is not going to help them out with field field position, but um, we'll, we'll see about the Iowa defense. Um, the other thing is, you know, Iowa's offense, you know, can they score? I like, I, I'm going to take the other side. I'm going to say they don't score more than seven. In fact, I'm going to say that they score three. That, that they kick a field goal in the second half to avoid being shut out, and that's about as well as they can do. Um, look, this this Iowa team, George, in nine conference games, averaged 14 points. Think about that. They scored 14 points per game in conference play, and they went 7-2. and two. The best team that they played all season, they didn't play Michigan or Ohio State, Best team they played was Penn State, and they got absolutely trounced, and they got shut out. No, you're so, right. So that's what we're looking at here. So anyway, this this was uh, we've spent way too much time talking about Iowa. All right, so let's go to the Friday night game, Pac-12 championship, uh, Oregon and Washington in Las Vegas, I believe is the location. All right, uh, you go first. All right, I'm, I'm just going to go with Oregon. Um, it, it's just it's hard to pick Washington if you've been watching these teams, not only when they played earlier and Oregon was probably the better team in Seattle, but Washington found a way to win to their credit. Since then, Oregon has clearly been the better team and I just neutral field. I just, I can't go against them. I'm with you. It's, it's Oregon. I think, I I think it's possible and I understand what I'm saying. And I, and this is a famous last words. Oregon might be the best team in the country. I don't, they don't have the best resume. I'm not saying that. Um, they're not unbeaten. 
I just think they might be the best team in the country. I don't see a real weakness in that team. They did lose in Seattle. They probably have a couple decisions Dan Lanning would like to have back. He would not want to admit that out loud, and he hasn't. Um, but they played basically to a draw and, and, and lost by, what, three in, in Seattle. And they have played much better and looked much better and been dominant against everybody they played since that time. And so I'll pick Oregon to win it. Okay. All right. That takes us to Saturday. And, and maybe to game. win the whole thing if we get to that point. So Right. Well, I tell you what, if Oregon week. wins this game, we'll find out whether they're the best team in the country because they'll have their opportunity to they'll prove have their it. Opportunity. And we'll be doing yeah. picks, probably not next week, but sometime in the weeks to come. We'll, we'll have to do some picks to figure out who's going to win what. But go ahead. That's right. Okay. So first game of significance on Saturday, Big 12 championship game in Arlington, Texas and Oklahoma State. You want to go first? Yeah, listen, I I love what Mike Gundy's done at Oklahoma State this year. Um, Texas has skated past some people, but they've won it, and I think they're rounding into shape again. Uh, you know, they weathered an injury to Quinn Ewers. He's back uh, and, and maybe getting back into sort of form. I think Texas wins. I think Texas wins. And then the question is, can Texas get in or not? It goes back to what we talked about in the first half, but I think Texas beats right. Oklahoma State and wins the Big 12 championship for the first time in however long. Yeah, been a while. I'm going to go with um, Texas as well. I, I think that the chance for people wanting an upset in the Big 12 was for BYU to have held on to that halftime lead in Stillwater against Oklahoma State once the Cowboys won it and Texas got to play Oklahoma State instead of Oklahoma. I felt like the Big 12 was a done deal, so I'm picking the Texas Longhorns, and we'll see if uh, we'll see if both of us are correct on this. All right, that takes us to uh, the – I tell you what, we'll, we'll save um, – well, we'll just go in order. SEC Championship in Atlanta, mid-afternoon on Saturday, Alabama and Georgia. I'm going to go – I'm going to go Georgia. I think they're better than Alabama. I, I, I don't know that I know how good Georgia is, but uh, until beaten, they now own the SEC's longest winning streak. Um, they're – whatever it is, 29 games, something like that. Uh, and they have been, they have started to look dominant over the last three or four games uh, in a way they didn't look earlier in the year. I think we could quibble at some point, like, hey, what's the best win? Like, for example, if they lose to Alabama, what's your best win? Well, I don't know. Um, but I don't expect them to, to lose to Alabama. Um, it's what Nick Saban's done with Alabama is tremendous since that loss to Texas. They're a better, they're a better team than they were. Uh, I don't think they're good enough to beat this Georgia team. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch things up here. Um, I don't know how many times I've picked against Alabama this year. It's been a few. I'm gonna go with the Tide because I watched two years ago as Alabama barely escaped. I mean, similar in that it was like a minor miracle to get out of Jordan Hare without suffering a huge upset. Looked like they were nowhere near the caliber of Georgia, and they went into Atlanta and they beat them by 17. Um, I'm not saying that that's going to happen this year as far as the margin of victory, but I don't think this Georgia team is as good as the previous two. And, you know, Alabama has won. I I wish I had the number off the top of my head, but they've won um, quite a few games in a row against the number one team in the nation. Uh, Now, a lot of the time Alabama has been the number one team and they've played against number two in some of these games they've lost. But Alabama against number one, um, I don't think they've lost to a number one ranked team since like 2008 against Tim Tebow's Florida. It, it's, been a, it's been a long time. 
So um, I'm, I'm going with Alabama in a pure underdog situation. It is not often that Nick Saban is able to play the underdog card, but this is one of those rare opportunities. And I think Alabama shows up and I think they end that Georgia streak. And then whether they get into the playoff is a totally different story. All right. So uh, last game, the pick ACC. And this, this is the one that maybe the chaos hinges on, uh, which is will Florida State be able to survive one more game with a backup quarterback against a Louisville team that's coming off of an embarrassing loss at home to Kentucky. What do you say? Charlotte, North Carolina, Florida State, Louisville. I think at least in part because Louisville lost to Kentucky. I think they're a pretty decent team. Not a great team, but decent team. I think Louisville pulls the upset. I think Louisville ends the magical run by Florida State. And I hate to say that, and that would not be the case if Travis Jordan was still playing. Uh, I just think they're a different team. Florida State's a different team. And then I think that relieves this, the pressure on the committee that we were talking about. Uh, but I'm going to choose Louisville over the Knowles, and, um, and maybe we shouldn't give out the uh, email address afterwards <laughs> because I know how Seminole fans can be. So, listen, uh, I've been wrong on various things all year long, but I'm picking Louisville. Well, I'm, I'm doing the same thing because obviously Florida State is vulnerable with a backup quarterback. Louisville's not a great team, but I just feel like everything always seems to work out for the selection committee. Um, and this is the one game where I really think it could happen, where if, if Florida State were to lose this game, then I think the champions of the other four conferences will be your playoff field. And I think it's that simple. So um, I'm I'm taking Louisville to upset Florida State. And I do feel like it's kind of a toss-up game, uh, given the quarterback situation at FSU. I think it'd be a very different story if not for that injury. But the injury occurred, and uh, I'm I'm with you. I'm going with the uh with the upset. So um so there we go. We're on the same side of what, all but one? Is it just the SEC? Yeah, just the SEC, which is just fine. The SEC, That's fine. So yeah, that is that is fine, um, and so uh, we'll we'll see who comes out who comes out ahead in that one, and then uh, then we'll look forward to making some bowl picks. I guess we will have Army Navy after that, which is technically the end of the regular season for us. We'll pick that game next week, uh, yep. but uh, but other than that, it is almost bowl season, and uh, you know, hope everybody enjoys Championship Saturday. And uh, thanks again to our picks partner, Better Man, for giving us this opportunity to show how much we know about college football to this audience every single week. Every single week, yeah. And listen, by the way, uh, this podcast is going to continue weekly. Um, Our plan is to go weekly uh, every week because I think we can talk college football all the time. We're not quitting just because the regular season uh, is ended. Uh, And we obviously would go through the end of the uh, college football playoff, and then we'll keep going after that. But my point is we'll talk about what the playoff committee has done um, uh, in next week's podcast because they will make those choices on next Sunday, a week from today. And then we'll have plenty to talk about with Heisman, with, uh, with uh, minor bowls, with major bowls, with what's going to happen in the playoff, with coaching moves, all sorts of stuff, portal moves, all sorts of stuff to talk about. But um, we got to go. So thanks to our, our On My Heart partner again, Legacy Way. Really appreciate you guys. I do appreciate Better Man. And I know that you just said that, Brad. And thanks especially to our presenting partner for Gridiron and the Gospel, a Faith and College Football podcast. And that's Subsplash. Subsplash, so much more than just a church software. It brings people together, empowers giving, fosters discipleship, and transforms lives. You can book a demo today at subsplash.com slash SBC. There's a special discount for churches if you use that link. 
uh, and only if you use that link. It's subsplash.com slash SBC, subsplash.com slash SBC. So you can visit us online at gridironandthegospel.com. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at gridiron underscore gospel. You can email us, even angry Knowles fans, at gridirongospelpod at gmail.com. Do it. And please, yeah, yeah. But but listen, I don't know why Brad would say those things about them. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> be sure to rate and review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, right? We're on all the major podcasting platforms. Just search for us, Gridiron and the Gospel, or follow, follow the links on the website, gridironandthegospel.com. And if you'll tune in next week for more, we'd appreciate it. Gridiron and the Gospel, a faith and college football podcast, is a BP sports Production.